1: Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. We are embarking on a series of podcasts looking at how children are really at the mercy of of culture um, that doesn't really. Protect them, and and how it is manifested in their actions and beliefs. On this episode, we're talking, uh, we're taking a look at the Generation Z. Those are people born between like the nineteen nineties and two thousand ten. So there are people between the ages of their early teens to early thirties, um, and sort of the golden. Age is probably in the college um, age area there. It is a generation where we can see the effects of having very little to no faith in God or organized religion. It's a generation that is a living example of the fact that, you know, if you don't believe in God, you believe in anything. You believe in something. It's a generation that displays that you don't have a choice of whether to believe, only what to believe in. And a new study shows their beliefs make them more intolerant to people who don't share their views. Now, Dr. Alex McFarlane, he's a theologian who speaks to young people all over the country. He's authored or co-authored more than 20 books, including The Assault on America, How to Defend Our Nation Before It's Too Late, uh, 10 Issues That Divine Christians, The God You Thought You Knew, and many more. Uh, he directs Biblical Worldview and teaches in the School of Practical Government for Cherish Bible College. It's located in Woodland Park Company, or Colorado Company, hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, Alex is laughing because I'm not a doctor, okay. Alex. but his um his Alex McFarlane Ministries hosts viral truth campus clubs all across America. Um, Alex is a great friend of Lighthouse Faith Podcast and is always able to bring things into the proper light. Welcome, Alex.
0: Well, thank you, Lauren. It's great to be here with you in New York City. We. Do so many things by Zoom or remotely. So. I know.
1: We're coming out of COVID finally. So you're actually in the studio now.
0: Yeah. It's really fun. And thank you for having me. And may I commend you for the great work you do. I travel all over the country, and a lot of people know that I've been on various broadcasts with you. And everywhere I go, everywhere, people have such great things to say about the work of Lauren Green.
1: Oh, my goodness. They I will thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm really fascinated by this Gen Z. I mean, I'm, you and I are much older, and so we kind of forget about... W- what it was what is like for them to grow up. And we see more and more in the stats that um, there are more nuns that they say there are more people growing up who have no uh, relation to religion or know, no belief in uh, an organized religion, and they're sort of kind of finding their spirituality on their own, which is actually quite dangerous. I mean, mm-hmm. you and I grew up in an environment where you know mom and dad brought us to Sunday school. Sure, um, this and and so your idea of morality is based on what you learned there, and how and your family structure was based on that. And these kids don't grow up with that, but they have beliefs, and this is what is interesting, right?
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. And let me say, kids are spiritually hungry. Uh, They really are. But uh, the state of morality and religion in our nation is directly contingent on the state of the family. And we can talk about culture, and there's a lot to say about the trends in culture and government and politics and ideologies. But, Lauren, I believe that the reason that there is um, rejection of belief in God, ambiguity about morals... Uh, there, there's this crisis of truth because there's a crisis within the family.
1: What is the crisis in the family? Let's get to that first, because that's where kids are influenced most early on, and that's the, their early influence is what stays with them.
0: Sure. Well, so many young people are the products of a broken home or a home that never was. Mm-hmm. You know, um, very often, people talk about "quote the traditional family," mm-hmm. of mother and dad. And you know, whenever I'm at universities and I'll be on panel discussions, you know, sometimes almost sarcastically they'll say, "Well, you know, it's not the 1950s and Ozzy and Harriet and the the mom and the dad and the white." Yes,
1: there's a there's a quite disparaging of you yeah. know that traditional home life.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, among the left, there is a real condescension and and dismissive posture about. Mom, dad, husband, wife, family. And yet, uniformly, But besides scripture, volumes of psychological literature and studies show that the best context for a young person to grow up in is in a stable, loving, two-parent home with their biological mom and dad. Why
1: is it that we can see the evidence, and if we look at just the evidence— Are there so many voices that are disparaging that very, very simple kind of upbringing?
0: Um, Well, uh, the minister in me knows that people want to be their own God. Uh, People don't want to have boundaries and have to say, you know what, there are objective moral truths, and I have not lived up to them and, in fact, have actively tried to break them. You know, I mean, when when you talk about right and wrong, Lauren, um, Mm -hmm. it gets convicting, and and very often people, oftentimes people in positions of authority with PhDs, um, rather than um, admit, look, over the last 60, 70 years we've gotten some things wrong. Doctor Spock was wrong. Children mm-hmm. children do need discipline. Yeah. Um, Helen Gurley Brown and Cosmopolitan and uh, the the women's uh, liberation movements had some things wrong. That. Um, there, there is this human desire for the nest and stability, and a, a sanctuary and a home life, and uh, mom and dad can raise the child better than the secular educator and the social, uh, sociological architects. So there are people in the culture that personally and collectively um, would do well to admit that you know traditional values. They worked for about 6,000 years of human history. You know? yeah. But um, i got to tell you this, Lauren. I just came from um, western North Carolina. We had a, a retreat, a four-day winter retreat that concluded on Monday. And there were 183 teenagers from about five states. So I've got cards that you know I always do surveys with young people. A middle school girl because we were talking about the clubs that we start called Viral Truth. She said, we have a club at our school. She was a, a sixth grader. She said, we have a sad club. Mm. Now, I, I thought, is that an acronym for Students Against Drunk Driving? You know, <laughs> it wasn't that. She said, uh, so many of my friends are sad, and we try to encourage each other. So the sad club is like the biggest club at her middle school. because And I said, what are you sad about? She said, well, our family— I never get to see our dad, my parents are always fighting um, the future, and and they may not be able to articulate it as well as, you know, the, the, the pundits, but kid, middle schoolers are concerned about the state of our nation, open borders, mm-hmm. you know, crime, and um, to our original question about the war on children, I mean... Kids are smart enough to realize that our culture needs um, help, and yeah. so it just blew my mind that that a, a girl would tell me they've got a sad club because so many of her peers they're they're afraid and they're sad.
1: There's there's so much pressure on them too. How much does social media play into that? Because a lot more of these, probably all of them now, are on social media, and this is where they're sort of interaction with their friends or pseudo-friends are.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's a Photoshop-filtered TikTok world. And yet, when we get away... And I, I do think spending so much time online is maybe a little bit of an escape because there's so much about what's on social media that's just not real. Yeah.
1: yeah. And,
0: um, you know, maybe it's a little bit of an escape.
1: I mean, we used to talk to each other on the phone.
0: Yeah, and sure. You could only talk to one person on the phone at a time. No, it's true, though. And, and that is real... Intimacy and human-to-human interaction. You know, kids nowadays, they may or may not be talking to a human. They may be chatting with some AI, you know. Right. But the the thing is, all of the connection of technology has made us less socialized with each other. And, Mm. I mean, it's just axiomatic about the— and I'm generalizing, I know, so I want to preemptively ask forgiveness for what I'm about to say— not all, but many millennials don't have a lot of social skills. Um, some do, some don't. But kids, you know, just being able to converse with a stranger or even, you know, go, go to any major retailer and you can see the the students working, and I commend them that they're working. But when it comes to customer service or, or just people skills and extemporaneous conversation, they really push back from that because they've not had all maybe the socialization you and I had growing up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is that technology is not um, rationed by mom and dad. One, one thing I do in, in my parenting seminars and counseling, mom and dad, you've got to set some boundaries for the use of technology in the home. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you, you owe it to your child that they should not, should not spend seven to nine hours on screen a day. Yeah. Which is what many kids do.
1: You know, Mary Eberstadt wrote that book, um, Primal Scream, Mm. and she talks about the problems of the sexual evolution has caused so many other problems because it filters down into separating love from sex. You know, it's no longer in the boundary of marriage. It is in, you know, by the time somebody gets married, they've had multiple sex partners. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, from a biblical point of view, sex is meant to bind two people, a man and a woman, together in Holy matrimony for life. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have sex and you don't marry that person, uh, it's it's like you're ripping the tape off constantly, Mm -hmm. and then it no longer has the glue to keep the relationship together. How much has the sexual revolution contributed to what's happening with young people today?
0: Uh, I, I think hugely so, hugely so. And it's almost like the sexual revolution and increasing levels of explicitness within media have run parallel to the uh, increasing abandonment of boundaries and commitment in the culture. You know, um, Years ago, Cal Thomas wrote an article called The Diminishing Returns of Explicitness. Mm. And like, oh my goodness, nowadays they say that 47 percent of pastors look at online pornography in the course of a week oh my gosh Uh, yeah and uh, you know pornography jordan peterson the canadian psychologist who i appreciate so much has done a lot about just the detrimental effect of pornography whether it be you know i mean there's gradations of of porn and whether it's um a drug addict as they say, chasing the dragon. People that get addicted to sex or get addicted to online porn, I mean, to have the stimulation and to get the rush, there's got to be increasing, increasing levels of deviancy and things like that. Now, we're living in a time when kids at six, seven years old will have seen uh, pornographic images because invariably online, this is why mom and dad need. To supervise what your kids are watching online, kids today, what you and I would have grown up about purity and mm-hmm. um, saving oneself till marriage, right, right, and then um, you, you, there's commitment, and you're married, and you, you stay with your spouse, and you are there for your kids. I mean that that just seems almost like a fairy tale that no longer is, and maybe even never was.
1: And not only that, if someone actually tries to live that way, they get very little encouragement from their peer group. That's right. And not only do they not get encouragement,
0: they probably are maligned and made fun of because of that. And and here's the irony, and again, secular studies show, uh, show this, bear this out. Um, the people that have the greatest levels of intimacy have uh, more sex and over a longer period of time, and it's... Um, you know meaningful and committed are married people, traditional married, you know, for a long period of time. The the irony is, and this is this is really the, the lie of uh, there was Os Guinness, I'm sure you've probably mm-hmm. interviewed, sure. he he wrote an article some years ago called The Strip Tease of Humanism, how it's a tease and it's a lie. And really the people who have uh, less sex and less satisfying sex are the people that have abandoned traditional values. And uh, the Hugh Hefner, I mean, my goodness, what what a what a tragic figure, not to mention immeasurably detrimental figure Hugh Hefner was. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we're we're at a culture that tried an experiment mid 20th century: life without God, life without morals, life without truth. Life without boundaries. And rather than setting us free, we find ourselves orphaned, if not enslaved.
1: It's it's really, really, really um, disturbing. And one of the things that you talk about, um, <clears throat> which I thought was very interesting, one of the things that there's actually first things I wanted to, to talk about this because the First Things magazine came out with a, a uh, lead story uh, this week about the Drag racing or the drag uh, phenomenon how it 's come become mainstream, and how it's being pushed into younger and younger um, kids with you know the the drag queen you know reading hour or something at the yeah, library yeah, yeah. and the and the irony is is that it is <clears throat> it is actually more misogynistic and more detrimental and more um Insulting of women than
0: men—that's
1: mm. that, the irony. Yeah, the, the fact that you're—I that you're actually pushing this on children, and the and the and, and because it's become mainstream, the greater proponents of drag, you know, drag whatever, drag whatever, such, whatever, yeah. are liberal women.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, and really, again, in the quest to. Call the shots for myself, and nobody's going to impose their agenda on me and label me. Um, what happens is, we we really undermine the rights and the respect and the personhood of females, and to a, to a degree, males. Let, let me say this, Lauren, if I may, parenthetically, um, if whenever we talk about you know gender dysphoria or homosexual ideation, understand this. And, and I believe this to the core of my soul. And um, my interest in this topic began in a grad course under a UCLA medical school professor 25 years ago. So what I'm about to say is not right-wing religion. Mm-hmm. Th- this, is, this is secular psychology um, that you really don't hear in the mainstream media. But homosexual ideation and gender dysphoria is a means of attempting to deal with pain. For those that uh, experience same-sex attraction in pre-adolescence or adolescence, and for those that are confused about gender, um, there are contributing factors. The top four being, in, really in this order, number one, lack of bonding with the parent of the same sex. Number two, early childhood molestation. Number three, early childhood exposure to pornography. And then number four, other early childhood trauma like domestic violence, uh, divorce, um, uh, physical abuse, verbal abuse. So here's the thing. As kids um, exit childhood and there's pre-adolescence and puberty begins, and we all know that, you know, that's a time, every one of us, you know, we've got to kind of find ourselves, And as um, Abraham Maslow would have said, become self-actualized in the sense we, we begin to get a sense of self and a sense of identity mm-hmm. and stability. Well, when kids, you know, a little boy learns masculinity from dad, uh, a young lady learns femininity from mom, right? Right. And then when there is this tragic wounding of the psyche by sexual abuse, and and this is so terrible, um, one of the ways that we try to cope with those pains and that almost um, panic of not really knowing who I am, and what's so sad is, Children that have been violated, very oftentimes they wonder, "This is my fault. Did yeah. I bring this on myself?" You know, uh, it's so sad, and it's no surprise actually that the rise of homosexuality and transgenderism has run on a parallel track over the last fifty years with the breakdown of the family and no fault divorce, and you know, fifty to sixty, sixty wow. percent plus of children that aren't raised with mom and dad. And I, I've counseled many people. And believe me, I, I I realize that a lot of what I'm saying.
1: Well, I know that you pe- realize what a lot of what you're going to say. People push back on it. They've got big, um, l- Let's take a break right now here on, Fox, okay. uh, on okay. Lighthouse Faith Podcast because I, I want to get into this, this area because um, it's very important that we, we balance it out with what the APA now is saying, of course. Yes. We'll be right back.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
1: Dr. Alex McFarlane, who is um, many things—author and but has ministries—and he hosts the Viral Truth Campus Clubs. But we're, we were talking about something that has become incredibly controversial, which is the idea of the rise of transgenderism, and it seems the the acceptability of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. All of those things. One of the the one of the things that's actually um, Behind this is the APA, the American Psychological mm-hmm. Association, which de-diseased homosexuality in the 70s, right. not from a study, mm-hmm. but from a vote. It right. was a, really a political decision. And I think that's very, very clear. Um, and and what, it, what what it's done is that we can't have the kind of conversations anymore that you're bringing up.
0: That That's right. That that,
1: that conversation is 25 years ago. That's what they're going to say, because you said you had this study, that you had this information from a UCLA professor 25 years ago. And they will say, yes, because that's 25 years ago. We know so much more now.
0: Right. The definitive book on that is called Homosexuality and the Politics of Truth by Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Satinover. And he was at Albert Einstein School of Medicine and an MIT grad one of the most mind-boggling resumes, like Six Masters and Three... Yeah. Th- uh, I've read
1: that book. It's, uh, yeah.
0: it, it, is, it is mind-boggling. It, it is a fascinating book. And, you know, I want to be unequivocally clear. Um, I'm only speaking for myself here. What I'm sharing is, is um, not uh, anybody's opinion but my own. But in ministry, you know, and I do a lot of counseling, and I... It's an honor to try to invest myself in helping people. But Literally hundreds of people over the last 30 years that have come to my office hurting. Is there hope? People that have immersed themselves in um, homosexual relationships, multiple partners, um, cross-dressing. I mean, I I did the funeral of a cross-dressing man, uh, and just um, the last year of his life, he found for the first time in his life real joy, but it wasn't in the lifestyle that he had been pursuing, it was in a relationship with Christ. And he had been rejected by his father and had been physically and verbally abused. And it was just revelatory, Lauren, when he learned of the unconditional love of God. And I know um, right now, um, you know, God, the Bible, Jesus, we could— take a different tack and talk about why I believe those things are real. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's another subject for another show. But just for the purpose of this conversation, um, I really do believe, Lauren, that compelling lines of evidence point to the existence of God, the trustworthiness of of the Bible, and the reality of Jesus Christ. So for hurting people, regardless of the pathology or pain, the the reality that there is a a God who loves them – and is unconditional, and His grace is unlimited, inexhaustible. I think that's a message that people need to hear. Uh, children need to hear it.
1: Well, you know, the and we're talking, we're going to go back to the, the gen, Z generation, because this is very interesting in their manifestation of really not having, of growing up with really not a lot of beliefs yeah. uh, in God. They They're not brought to Sunday school. Uh, they don't learn the Ten Commandments. They don't learn the Bible stories. But there is a feeling that something is definitely right and something is wrong. They know this, and they but they don't know where that comes from. You and I know that comes from the ultimate creator who has put in us this sense of right and wrong and law and justice. Right. But one of the things you d- discovered is that they are incredibly intolerant of people who don't ha- share their views. What is this? Tell me where this comes from and tell me why what they're intolerant about
0: well uh it's the outgrowth of the philosophy of relativism that i can make my own truth and i mean kids learn this in school kids uh you know i had a a parent call me about a week ago took his eight-year-old to the doctor a a pediatrician in north carolina and the doctor knelt down eye to eye and said to the eight-year-old do you want to be a boy or do you want to be a girl
1: oh my goodness
0: and the, and the parent was about to speak, and the doctor was like, no, let the child answer. And the little boy said to the doctor, and I quote, said, duh, I'm a guy. <laughs> but, you know, the, the insistence upon relativism has uh, woven itself so deeply into our culture Lauren I mean when you've got medical doctors and look I understand what celebrities and talking heads can say about whatever they want but you know we're talking about science here you and I we live in a world where we're told follow the science well in the history of mammalian biology Mm -hmm. I mean there are males and there are females procreation involves male and female human beings are you know XY chromosome males XX females and yet a doctor pediatrician to say to a child, what do you want to be, a boy or a girl? That says you can create your own reality.
1: Which is funny because you wouldn't let a child decide if he wants to walk across the street on a red light or a green light. What do you want to do?
0: Exactly. exactly. You would not give an eight-year-old the keys to a sports car. You know, um, there are some things about life that are simply beyond our ability to control. You know, where we were born the family into which we were born, and our our gender. And do you know, it goes back to God. Lauren, um, there comes a point when we just have to acknowledge that um, there there are some parameters of life that I, despite my insistence, I cannot change. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I'm never going to be George Clooney. (laughs) You know? But somehow I. Well, he's never going to be Alex McFarlane either. Yeah, he's, he's grateful for that, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, we've got to trust that the good Lord just knew. And, and this goes back to the Psalms, really, if I can uh, invoke the Bible a little bit. Psalm 16, verse 6, very interesting verse. It says, The boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a godly heritage. God, Almighty God, sets some of those boundary lines and one of the boundaries that god chose not us is our gender mm. and and really let me just say this about moral relativism coming to its fullest fruition See, it's one thing to say god you can't tell me how to behave um you know the 60s and the 70s were a lot about overthrowing old mores and norms Right. you know abby hoffman wrote steal this book never trust anyone over 30 and uh if it feels good do it and uh you know jim morrison of the doors would scream there are no rules there are no laws grab your neighbor and love him okay but 50 years ago we said god you can't tell me how to behave today we're saying god you don't even have the right to tell me who i am wow And so I would say among young people, and I wrote an article here, um, Gen Z, Zillennials, Reels, Soggies, it's almost like sociologists struggle to create accurate acronyms to describe, you know, where the youth are, but... There's a crisis of identity. Now, think about this for a second. Like, let's say you've got – you're on the horns of a dilemma. You don't know, should I take the job in Minneapolis? Should I take the job in Manhattan? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, processing a decision can be a struggle. But kids today that are in adolescence and they're going to young adulthood – I mean, the struggle used to be, what will I do? Will I get a degree in this or that? What will – they don't know who they are. And my heart breaks and I've watched kids and their parents weep because there is a crisis of identity. And one of the most fundamental knowledge points that is a precursor for a healthy life is to have a sense of who I am.
1: Well, and also that's actually one of – I think one of the reasons why the real intolerance for views other than their own has to do with gender identity um, um And transgenderism and all of those things, because if you don't agree with this, you're a hate monger. It's not that you disagree. It's that you have – we don't want you to think like that. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with you foundationally if you think like that. And this this has become the new salvation of Gen Z is my gender identity. That's my salvation, not God. Right. You know, not you know whatever, but then the, it draws to the question that a certain amount of what makes a woman a woman and a man a man is a lot of a lot of gender socialization, mm-hmm. right? right? You have to be socialized into a certain understanding of what makes a male and female. My cats are, you know, don't really do that because they kind of just are cats. They don't understand, right. um, but people should. Understand, and there's a there's a certain amount of gender socialization, but the Bible talks about male and female. It does not talk about uber machismo, Marlboro man. Everybody got to strive to be like Tom Brady, kind of you know male, right, right, or uber feminine, feminine beauty queen. You know, in sort of the caricature of that feminine, probably are the. the drag um, racers. And
0: have you noticed how often uh, the drag um, queens are a caricature? Yeah. Y- you know, like um, I've seen some of the pictures of the drag queen story hour that's at some of the public libraries. And, you know, it's it's always or virtually always very, very over the top. And it's it's something less than human.
1: Well, then there's also something that the article brought out was that the drag queens often call themselves very disparaging names of on women, um, even RuPaul's drag uh, queen racing, whatever that is. They have they're judged on certain things. That is an acronym for uh, female genitalia. Really, and uh, why would you let men? Um, Despised women that? so much in term and and the idea is like yeah, I wouldn't call my best friends these names
0: right but right. yet
1: they call each other these names and that's part of the mystique of the drag queen
0: um, culture isn't that something and and it's not respectful is it uh, and and very often those of us that actually do believe in objective morality um, you know we're we're called haters or phobic or something like that but. Um, one of the core values of Western culture, and not just Christianity but Western civ in general, is um, the value of personhood. And you have rights, and you are worthy of respect and deference, um, not because of how much money you may or not have, or in, but because you're a human being. Right. And, and one of our core values in the human uh, in the Western world has been that. Um, Every person is sacred, really. Um, A a person is an end in themselves. Um, When I honor you, I'm honoring the one whose image you bear. Um, And everyone has worth and value and dignity. And indeed they do. But I I was going to say this. I thought it was interesting to talk about that um, we've got to help young people understand that emotions are not the litmus test for truth. Because right. if if you're counseling a, a child about gender confusion, a child might say, "But you don't know how I feel." Right, and and I understand um, only to a slight degree can we understand how another person feels. But regardless of how you feel, um, that's not lit- litmus test for truth. L- let me digress here for a second and um, mention my sister Caroline Stainback. And she, I'm sure we'll hear this. I'm very <laughs> close to my sister, five years older than me. But she was either the the first or the second in the state of North Carolina, about 1975, diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. Wow. Um, and in the 70s, they didn't know what eating disorders were. And she um, was growing up, and it, I mean, it was a classic case. She was um, growing up, and her girlfriend's, Developed at a certain rate and, you know, there's body image issues, although we didn't even know the term body issues. Mm -hmm. I was just, I don't know, 11, maybe. But anyway, my sister wound up at Duke University um, and she had starved herself from being a a trubic little teenage girl to down to, I don't know, 58, 59 pounds. Wow. At 15, 16 years old. She and I'll never forget. We were with my parents and uh, Doctor Norman Garrett was his name, medical doctor. He came in. He said, "I've been on the phone with some uh, colleagues in California. Anorexia nervosa. All right. Wow. Now here's the thing. What would have been more compassionate to say to my sister? I know you. You. She stood in a mirror. I was. I remember this vividly. My skin and bones. Sixteen year old sister." And she said, I'm so fat, I'm so fat. And she literally had to, she was admitted to the hospital on IVs because she was about to die. Now, what if I had said, you know, that's how you identify, good for you, be true to your real self. And my parents and my sister's doctors said, well, you may feel that way, but we have to intervene because we care enough about you to try to help you understand your feelings are not trustworthy on this subject. Mm -hmm. Now, in California, um, children can get puberty blockers and surgery. We're talking about the castration of children. And parents in California, and I'm told Maine as well, really don't have the legal right to intervene. Um, And we've got to help people understand, especially kids that are struggling with their own um, development, feelings are not a trustworthy test for truth in all situations. Uh, We have a moral duty to tell the person with an eating disorder, we want you to get good nutrition because we want you to be healthy. The person with body image issues, we need to say, look, I love you and I'm there for you and nothing can change my love for you. But let's look at some things a little more solid than just our emotions for some life Long decisions you're about to make.
1: Wow, um, Dr. Alex Luxford, I want to thank you so much for being a Lighthouse Faith podcast. We could talk for a very long time, and we probably will have you back because <laughs> it's always interesting to talk to. I mean, if you have a place where people can go seek advice, if they are, if you've brought up some kind of ideas, and people are listening to this and they want some place to go, where, how would they? Proceed. Where would you suggest they proceed?
0: You, you know, you mentioned Jim Daly, and I had the privilege of working for Focus on the Family for eight years, and still am in touch with a lot of the folks out there. Focus on the Family has a referral uh, database of counselors in all fifty states. People that are very vetted out—psychologists, um, psychiatrists, counselors—very trustworthy. And if somebody's listening, and they really, you know. Um, in any number of areas, they they just need some help and some direction. Um, I think their number is still 1-800-A-FAMILY. 1 8, 1 I'm not on staff there anymore, but <laughs> I, I of, often, you know... But re- there's a website. You yeah, can go yeah. focus on the focus family. Focus on the family. And then our own, um, my name, which is Alex McFarlane, and the website is alexmcfarlane.com. We interface, we have uh, staff members that um, can talk with parents having issues with their children, we're always, we've got, I've been fortunate enough to speak in about 2,200 cities, so we've got a network of people, whether they be clergy or churches or counselors or ministry programs, and we do our best to refer people to places where their needs can be met.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. As I say, you you know, I think there's a war on children. Yes. And uh, I think uh, we've just kind of entered the battle uh, because uh, that's all we can do is try to fight back.
0: Sure. Well, thank you for what you do. You are part of what's right with America. And as I said earlier... um, Everywhere I go, people know your name, they're, they're benefiting from your content, and I appreciate you and appreciate Fox.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Alex McFarland. And this has been Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Lauren Green. Have a very blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.